1932, the Chicago Cubs win the National League pennant, which meant that they would face off in the World Series against the Bronx Bombers as the New York Yankees won the American League pennant. It was a World Series of epic proportions, beginning in New York, where the Yankees took games one and two. The series then shifted to Wrigley Field in Chicago for games three and four, and game three in that situation is a pivotal game, because if the Yankees win and they take a 3 nothing lead in the series, it's kind of hard to come back from, but if the Cubs can pull off game three, knowing game four is also at home, they might just have a chance to steal this World Series from the New York Yankees. The game's tied through the first inning, it's tied through the second inning, it's tied through the third and the fourth inning. But in the fifth inning of game three, the famous Babe Ruth steps up to the plate with his Louisville slugger, and he gets into the batter's box. He watches as the pitcher winds up and delivers the first pitch for a called strike one. Steps out of the batter's box and regroups, steps back into the batter's box. He takes a couple warm-up swings. He gets ready. The pitcher winds up and delivers a called strike two. The Chicago fans are going crazy, jeering at Babe Ruth like you've never heard before, just screaming at the top of their lungs about how he's going to strike out, the Cubs are going to win the game and the World Series. And as Babe Ruth steps back into the batter's box, he does something that nobody ever does in baseball, and he raises his bat and points at the center field wall. Everybody around him freezes for just a moment, wondering what in the world is Babe Ruth doing right now, pointing at the right center field wall. He gets back into the batter's box, takes his stance, the pitcher winds up and delivers the third ball, which he crushes 500 feet over the right center field wall into the bleachers that were set up in the street outside the stadium for the World Series. Yankees would take the lead. They would win games three and four to shut out the Cubs to win the World Series. The new newspaper writers the next day said that Babe Ruth in that moment was almost like a pool player who had to point which pocket he was going to make the eight ball in, and he called his shot. In the 91 years since the 1932 World Series, there have been roughly 67 million pitches thrown in Major League Baseball games and in 67 million opportunities for somebody else to call their shot, there hasn't been a single batter who has even bothered to try. And yet that hasn't stopped little boys and girls all around the world from calling their shots in their mind on makeshift baseball fields in their backyard or the schoolyard or the field next to their house. Now, you might be wondering, what does any of this have to do with church or the Bible or Christmas? And I'm so glad you asked, because the answer to that is that we're in a series right now called Don't Skip It. And the idea behind the series is simple, that for so many of us, when we want to read the Christmas story in the Bible, we jump to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is the passage that begins so famously, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, and everyone went to their hometown to register. This is the Christmas story that we know and love. This is the Christmas story that we jump to when we want to read the Christmas story. Maybe you have a tradition where you read that story on, New on Christmas Eve. It's a great tradition, but when you start in Luke chapter 2, you just need to know you are skipping over some incredible passages that are also part of the Christmas story. 
When you jump to Luke chapter 2, one of the things that you do is you skip over Matthew's gospel, and Matthew records some of the incredible details of the Christmas story that we all know and love as well. Matthew is the one who tells us about the wise men who came from the east, and, and Matthew is the one who tells us that they brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. Matthew begins his passage that we all know and love with, with this, is, this is how the Messiah Jesus was born in chapter 1, verse 18 of his gospel. So when you read the Christmas story in Matthew's gospel, most likely you start in chapter 1, verse 18. But when we do that, we skip over some really incredible stuff that is part of the Christmas story. And so together, to get today, what I want to do is I want to remedy that. And I want us to look at Matthew's version of the Christmas story. But I don't want to begin in chapter 1, verse 18. I want to begin with verse 1 of chapter 1. It might take you a second to realize this is not what you expect the Christmas story to sound like, but this is what we read in Matthew 1, 1. He writes, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. You're wondering if I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. We're going to read all 17 verses of this. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. If anybody's pregnant, there are some fantastic options for baby names in here. <laughs> Meet baby Zerubbabel. It's like, what? <laughs> baby Zerubbabel, you know. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of El Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. You've probably never heard a Christmas teaching on the genealogy of Jesus before, but we're about to remedy that for you together this morning. I hope 
as your pastor that one of the gifts that you have given to yourself is time that you spend during the week digging into scripture on your own. I hope that you give yourself that gift. Maybe you start your day with that. Maybe you end your day with that. Maybe you work it in throughout the day. But I hope that you've developed a habit where you consistently do this because I have found no better way to start my day than to sit down and read something that is so inspiring and motivating and life-giving and true that is so uplifting and encouraging. I've never read anything that helps me discern God's will for my life the way that it has to dig into scripture. And I hope that you have created a habit or I hope that you will create a habit where you start to spend time digging into, into the scriptures on your own. Now, as you do that, what you'll find is that there is somewhat of a spectrum of how easy different passages are to apply to your life, or at least to understand how to apply it to your life. And so, for example, sometimes when you sit down to read a passage of scripture, you might read a passage where like Jesus has an interaction with somebody and and the guy says, hey, Jesus, what's the single most important thing I could get right in my lifetime? What's the greatest command? And when you read that passage, you see that Jesus says back to him, he says, the single greatest thing you can get right in your life is to love God, your heavenly father, above all else, to have, to have no, nothing that, that you love more than him. And then Jesus says, and then the next thing that you could do to, to get your life right is to love the people around you, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when you read a passage like that, what you're supposed to do is super obvious, right? It's very clear. Like, it's, it's very uh, prescriptive, if you will. It tells you exactly what to do, to love God and to love people. Then you'll read other passages, like the one that we just read, and you'll sit there for a moment, and you'll think to yourself, well, this passage, unlike those other passages, is not as prescriptive. And so what do I do with that? Do I just read the genealogy and move on and get to verse 18, where the where the Christmas story gets really good. And I would encourage you, no, in those moments where you feel like this is not really prescriptive, I don't know exactly how to apply this to my life. What you can do is you can dig a little deeper. And when you do that, these passages of scripture open up and you go, oh my goodness, there is such incredible content here. And so what I want to do together with you this morning is I want to take the first 17 verses of Matthew's gospel, and I just want to make five observations from the genealogy of Jesus that, that have to do with us and our lives today and the Christmas story. And I recognize that the five things is too many. I recognize that you won't be able to walk out of here with five things that you're like holding all of them in your mind equally. So here's the deal. Based on what I'm about to cover and we're going to look at together and based on the season of life that you're in, I want to encourage you to take one thing out of here today. This is Christmas week. After all, Christmas is, is next weekend. And so I want to encourage you to take one thing that you hear today from the genealogy of Jesus and let that be the thought that, that kind of permeates your week. Now, I'll jump in with number one right off the bat. The first thing that I see in the genealogy of Jesus is that God called his shot. We think Babe Ruth was impressive because he called a home run that he hit out of the park. And yes, that is incredibly impressive. And yet what God did in calling his shot is so much more impressive than hitting a baseball over a field. 
The, the, the passage begins in Matthew 1, 1, the very first verse, before he gets into all the details of who gave birth to who and who is the father of who, this is like begat, like the old King James says, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, meaning they were the father of, they were the father of. But before he gets into any of that, in 1, 1, he says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, why would Matthew bother to say at the beginning of his genealogy, this is the son of David, the son of Abraham? The reason that he does that is because the Israelites, the Jewish people, knew that God had promised to send an anointed one, a savior, a Messiah, the Christ, who would be from Genesis chapter 12, a descendant of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abraham, I'm going to bless the entire world through you. Through your descendants, I'm going to send someone who is going to, to bless all the peoples on earth. That was a promise from Genesis chapter 12. Well, you fast forward several generations to Isaiah and through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter nine, God promises the nation of Israel that the one that he's going to send would sit on his father David's throne and that his rule and reign would never end. And so of these two big prophecies, the Israelites came to understand that the one who was to come would be a descendant of David, and then even before that, he would be a descendant of Abraham. Now, the idea is that God called his shot. God orchestrated the birth of Jesus over the course of, of, of dozens of generations and thousands of years. I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking that for you this morning because Dugan did it last week. He did probably a better job than I could do with it today. And so if you want to dig into the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, just go back to last week's message and listen to it. But it's fantastic. Dugan talked about how Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies during his life in ministry. Absolutely unbelievable. But the point is that God called his shot. And you ask, well, what does that have to do with us today? Well, the, the, the reason that that's important for us today is because the fact that God called his shot is a reflection of the sovereignty of God. The fact that God was able to orchestrate everything the way that he did across generations and years and places is a reflection of the fact that God is sovereign. The, the idea that God is sovereign means that God is, is aware that God is present, that God is all-knowing, he is omniscient, he is, he is all-powerful, that God is able to orchestrate his will when and where he wants to, that ultimately the fact that God is sovereign means that God is in control. And that's good news for us today because it means no matter what situation we find ourselves in, we have the confidence of knowing we have a God with us that is sovereign. We have a God who is with us that is aware of what we're going through. He's aware of how we ended up here. He is aware of what we need and what it's going to take to move past this. And God is in control. This is good news for us today. The fact that God could call his shot with the birth of Jesus is good news for us because it is a reminder that God is sovereign over our lives today. And so no matter what you're facing in your life, you can have the peace and the confidence that comes from knowing that God is sovereign. That's just the first thing. The second thing that I see in the genealogy of Jesus is the idea that the Christmas story is fact, not fiction. Matthew wants his readers to know 
This unbelievable story that I'm about to tell you about, it's going to be filled with angel visits. It's going to be filled with, with a miraculous pregnancy and a virgin birth. Like It's going to be filled with some pretty wild things. But Matthew wants us to understand, before he gets into the, the beautiful floral story, he wants us to know this story is anchored in reality. It is anchored in a specific time and place. Fiction doesn't do that, does it? No, fiction, maybe fantasy doesn't, doesn't bother to do that. Maybe like me, you grew up hearing, you know, fairy tales and, and, uh, and like little stories that, that maybe somebody read to you, right? Maybe you, like I, remember hearing stories like, once upon a time, there was a woman who lived in a shoe. She had so many children, she didn't know what to do, right? Today, I think that woman comes to Heartland. I've met her. She's got so many kids, doesn't know what to do about it. Yeah. Um, no, but, but once upon a time, when is that? When is once upon a time? We don't know when once upon a time is, but that's okay because it's not claiming to be true, right? I love the Star Wars movies, but how do all of the Star Wars movies begin? Don't they begin with that scrolling text that says a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away? Right? You, you start the movie as that scrolls up and then it gets into the plot and the story. But the reality is we have no idea how long ago this was. We just know it was a long time ago. Was this like 50 years ago or is this 5,000 years ago? We don't know where it took place. It just says a galaxy far, far away. Well, is this galaxy like the next galaxy over or is this galaxy like 100 light years away? We don't know. But that's okay because the writers of Star Wars are not claiming that this is a true story. But the Christmas story is different. Matthew and the other gospel writers wanted us to understand this story is anchored in reality. He said, you want to know the story of Jesus? You want, to, you want to know whether or not this man was real? Well, let me just give you his family tree. I will give you his lineage, and you can go back and explore it for yourself if you want to. Jesus was real, and here's, here he is at the end of the family tree. The reason that this is important, that the, that the genealogy of Jesus is important, the reason that it's important that the Christmas story is fact and not fiction is because it means the message of Christmas is fact, not fiction. The message of Christmas is one that is filled with hope for all of us. The Christmas story is essentially this idea that that God looked down at humanity who had separated themselves from him by their own sinful actions, and God recognized there is nothing they're going to be able to do to bridge that gap between me and them. They are going to be left to wander on their own, isolated from me. But God wasn't willing to allow that to happen. And so God, in his love for us, said, I'm going to send a savior. I'm going to send a Christ. I'm going to send a Messiah who will bridge the gap between me and the people I have created and who I love. That message, that message is not a fairy tale. Matthew was arguing this message of hope for us and for our life today is not a, a nice story that we read and then we move on from. It is a story that we can anchor our lives to because it is not a fictional story. It is fact. And the genealogy of Jesus points to the fact that the Christmas story and the birth of Jesus was fact, not fiction. Third thing that I see in the genealogy of Jesus is the idea that God doesn't leave anyone out. God doesn't leave anyone out. 
We read the genealogy of Jesus today, and in those 17 verses, it reads pretty similar to how some of our genealogy might read if any of us knew our genealogy. For the most part today, we as Americans don't really know anybody in our family tree past about like our great-great-grandparents, right? Like we, I don't know who my 14th grandfather was. Like You probably don't either. But in the first century, people cared about their family tree. They documented it. But what they did was sometimes they would doctor the document. They would doctor their family tree and they would leave out anyone who didn't reflect their own greatness. And so historians have the genealogies of several important figures throughout history. And it's obvious to them now that based on all the other documentation that they cut people out of their genealogy. They were very selective with who they included. Well, Matthew does not do that with Jesus. And we see that right off the bat with the reality that Matthew documented five women in Jesus's genealogy. Again, today for us, that's no big deal. But in the first century, nobody included women in their genealogy. And yet in Jesus's genealogy, we see five women listed. We have Tamar, we have Rahab, we have Ruth, we have Bathsheba, and then we have Mary. Not only does Matthew include five women in Jesus's genealogy, four of them are foreigners. This would have been even more unheard of for the Israelites to think that God would include in his family tree foreigners, people from unclean nations, but he did, and Matthew's open about it. Both Tamar and Rahab were Canaanite women. Um, Ruth was a Moabite, and Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, was a Hittite. These women would not have been allowed to worship in the temple or the tabernacle, and yet here they are in Jesus's genealogy. Not only does Matthew include women, which was unheard of, not only does he include foreigners, which was unheard of, he also includes notorious sinners, people who did some of the most scandalous things in the Old Testament. You read about the people in Jesus's genealogy and you go, man, this was a colorful family tree, right? It begins right at the very beginning with Abraham. You go back and you read Abraham's story in Genesis. Abraham, listen to this, Abraham, one day he, he needed to go to Egypt to buy food. So he brings all of his family and uh, he realizes that his wife is beautiful and that the Pharaoh may want to take his wife. Well, for some reason, somebody like Pharaoh would not just take a person's wife to be his own wife. So what they would do is they would kill the husband first and then they would take the widow to be their wife. So out of fear for himself, Abraham lies and says, this is not my wife. This is my sister. You can have her. And so Pharaoh takes his wife as his own, and when the whole thing blows up, you would think Abraham learns from it, but several years later, Abraham does the same thing again with somebody else. This is awful. And this is the beginning of the lineage of Jesus. You fast forward a little, a couple generations, Abraham's grandson, Jacob. You could argue Jacob shouldn't even be in the family tree. It should be his brother Esau. Should be Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. But no, we read Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why do we read about Jacob and not Esau? Because in a moment of weakness, Jacob conned his brother into selling his birthright for a bowl of stew. And then when his father, Isaac, didn't want to give it to him, he waited until his dad was on his deathbed and his senses would be gone. And he conned him into thinking he was Esau so his father would give him the birthright. Jacob was a a man of deceit. Jacob had a bunch of sons of his own. The one that carried on the lineage for Jesus was Judah. What do we know about Judah? Judah sold his brother into slavery because he was jealous of him. I mean, how many times have you thought about selling your brother into slavery? But no, you wouldn't actually do it. Judah did. 
Judas sold his brother into slavery, took the coat that he was so jealous of, tore it up, put animal blood on it, came home to his father and was like, sorry, dad, Jacob, your favorite son, Joseph, was killed by a wild animal and here's your coat back. What? Are you kidding me? That's Judah. Then we read about how, how Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Why does he bother to mention Tamar? Tamar had Quite the experience. So, so Judah takes Tamar, this Canaanite woman, and gives her to his oldest son to be his wife. There was arranged marriage back then. So he's like, here you go, buddy. Here's your wife, Tamar. Well, this guy is so evil, God literally strikes him dead. So now Tamar's a widow and she hasn't had any children. So what does Judah do? Judah says, hey, he, to his second born son. He's like, you got to take your brother's wife and give her offspring so that, you know, she's not, you know, left alone that way. So, so son number two takes Tamar, but he doesn't want to give her any children because he doesn't want her children to take the inheritance that his children will get. So he is evil and God strikes him dead. Well, Judah has a third son, but he doesn't want to give Tamar to his third son because he's worried the problem might be Tamar. He's like, I don't want to give her. So he just says like, Tamar, go back and live in your father's household. Well, he's wronging Tamar by doing this. And so Tamar doesn't wait on God. She takes it on herself to solve her own problems. So she dresses up like a temple prostitute, veils herself, and she puts herself by the road where she knows Judah will pass by because apparently she knew Judah's character. She knew what kind of guy this was. Sure enough, Judah takes the bait. He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant with twins. And then even then, once she's pregnant, Judah wants to kill her until she basically blackmails him into doing the right thing. This is the family tree of Jesus. Clearly, no one gets left out, right? And what we find as you dig into the genealogy of Jesus is that Jesus' family tree was filled with people who lied and stole and cheated and committed adultery and murder and, and committed incest. And apparently, none of it disqualified them from being included in God's family. And the reality is that no matter what you or I do today, we do not lose the invitation either. We are not disqualified from being invited into the family of God because of what we do. Actually, let me correct that. We are disqualified because of what we do, but by the grace of God, God's love and grace and mercy covers that, and he qualifies us anyway. How crazy is that? That while we disqualify ourselves, God in his love says, it's okay, I will pay the penalty for your sin, and we are invited into the family of God. And what we find in Jesus is that all mankind sit down as equals, both Jew and Gentile, male and female, prostitute and king, and everyone in between. We all sit down equally sinful and lost and equally loved and invited. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter what your life has looked like up until this day. No matter who you are and no matter how you have chosen to live, God invites you to be part of his family tree. And that is a beautiful thought. I love what the late Tim Keller writes about this reality. He says this, he says in the old King James Bible, this chapter is filled with the begats. As I said, it said so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. This chapter is filled with the begats. Is that boring, he asks? No, 
The grace of God is so pervasive that even the begats of the Bible are dripping with God's mercy. Even the so-and-so fathered, so-and-so fathered, so-and-so fathered, so-and-so, even those statements are, are, are dripping with God's grace and love and mercy for you. It doesn't matter who you are. God does not leave anyone out. It brings me to the fourth thing that I see in the family of, of Jesus, and that is simply the reality that you are not defined by your family tree. After 20 plus years in ministry, I have heard so many heartbreaking stories about the wounds that people carry with them as adults that started as a child from their family of origin. I've sat in my office and I've listened to individuals talk about how they remember putting themselves to bed every night as a little child because their parent would drink to the point that they were so drunk, they would pass out either on the couch or the floor. And so even as a little kid, they learned they needed to lock the front door, turn off the lights, and crawl into bed by themselves. I've sat in my office and I've listened to people who have told stories about how, how they lived with a single parent, but their single parent was so, so desperate for someone to love them, that they gave themselves to anybody who showed promise. And as a result, they largely neglected their child that should have been their priority. And so they feel like they grew up raising themselves without any parent. I've sat in my office and I've listened to story after story after story of abuse, of sexual abuse, of physical abuse, of mental and verbal abuse. It's so interesting. When we dig into the genealogy of Jesus, we see that Jesus came from a long line of people who did these same sorts of things. And yet Jesus was not defined by his family tree and neither are you. You are not defined by your family tree. Now I would be quick to acknowledge that the wounds that you might carry from your family tree are very real. They are raw. I get it. I know that the scars run deep. I am not belittling those in any way, shape, or form. And one of the things that you may need to do as we head into a new year to finally move past that is spend some time with a professional counselor who can help you go back to your family of origin and your, your childhood experiences and, and may need to revisit where those wounds come from and to talk through that so that you can move past it finally. I would encourage you to do that. There is life in those moments. But hear me again, you are not defined by your family of origin. And the heritage that you received is far less important than the legacy that you ultimately leave. Are you with me? The heritage you received is less important than the legacy that you leave. You are not your family of origin. You are not, you had no power to choose what family you were born into. You had no control over what happened to you as a child, so you are not defined by your family tree. Those things that you experienced in the past may be impacting your present, but they do not have to dictate your future because you are not defined by them. One of the great things about the Christmas story and about coming to faith in Jesus is that when you put your faith in Jesus, not only are you given a new heart, you are given a new start. 
This is what the apostle Paul was talking about in the letter that he wrote to the people living in Corinth. And in 2 Corinthians, he says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. When you put your faith in Christ, your identity is found in one thing and one thing only, and that thing is Jesus. Your identity, when you put your faith in Christ, is anchored to Jesus himself. And the old you is laid to rest. The old you is buried and left behind. And the new you has arrived. The new you has come. The new you is reborn. And the new you in Christ is made alive. You are healed. You are made whole. You are made complete. You are filled with the Holy Spirit, which is a deposit of the guarantee that God has set up for you as an inheritance. You have access to the throne of God and the same power that raised Jesus from the dead now resides in you. And not only that, but God invites you into the work that he is doing in this world. I don't care what message you heard growing up about how you were stupid or how you would never amount to anything. God has blessed you with gifts and talents and skills and passions, and he has placed you in the lives of people who he loves and who he wants to reach through you. So not only has God invited you into his family, he is inviting you into the work that he is doing today all around you. God doesn't leave anyone out. He wants you. And he wants to give you a new life and a new hope and a new purpose. And when you live that out from this day to your last, you leave behind a legacy that trumps anything that was handed down to you. Your heritage that you received is far less important than the legacy you leave. But that all starts with a relationship with Christ. It all starts with the relationship with the Messiah. And so that's the fifth thing that I want to show you in the genealogy of Jesus this morning. The fifth thing that we see in the genealogy of Jesus is simply the claim that Jesus is the Messiah. For the nation of Israel, they believed all of these prophecies that God had given them that pointed to one who would come and who would change everything the one who would make all things new, the one who would conquer sin and death once and for all on behalf of all mankind. They, they thought of this figure as the Messiah. That was the title that they gave to it. And so Matthew, four times in the first 18 verses of chapter one, before he gets into the birth story and the Christmas story, he says, listen, this one I'm gonna tell you about is the Messiah. We see it in verse one when he writes, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. We see it in verse 16 when he says, Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. We see it in 17 when he says there were 14 generations from the exile to the Messiah. And in verse 18, when he begins by saying, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah came about. Matthew's getting ahead of himself a little bit here. Matthew knows, man, over the course of the next 28 chapters, I'm going to talk about what Jesus said and did. I'm going to talk about the unbelievable teaching, the teaching that nobody had ever heard anything like. He's like, I know that I'm going to talk about the miracles that Jesus performed and the people that he would touch that nobody would touch and how he loved everybody who came to him. 
He said, I'm going to document the conflict that he has with the hypocritical religious leaders and, and how ultimately that would lead him to, to a trial and the cross. He's like, I'm going to document that Jesus laid down his life on the cross, how he was buried and laid to rest. And I'm going to document how Jesus's life was brought back to him and how he raised up again. But I just, even right now at the beginning of chapter one, he's like, I got to get ahead of myself. And I just want you to know before you start reading the Christmas story that Jesus is the one that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one who came and who changed everything. He is the one in whom we find life and hope and love. He is the one who, who gives us confidence and peace in the midst of a fallen and broken world. And, and he loves you. That's the message of Christmas. That's what's revealed in the genealogy of Jesus. And no matter who you are this morning, that's the offer that's on the table for you to acknowledge him, not just as a good teacher, not just some Jewish rabbi from 2000 years ago, and to not just experience it as a cute story like all the other fairy tales, but to know that this is true and that you can build your life on it. So if you've never made that decision this morning, I would love to invite you to consider it. To consider what if it's true? What if it's not just a fairy tale that we love to celebrate once a year when we hang stockings and wrap presents? What if it's actually true? What would that look like for you to follow Jesus as your Messiah? What would that feel like to be made new and whole. That's the invitation for you this morning. And the reason that Jesus is ultimately the Messiah is because of what Matthew would document at the end of his gospel. The fact that Jesus would go to the cross and lay down his life to pay the penalty for our sin so that the wall between us and God himself could be broken down. And the ceremony that Jesus gave us to celebrate that is a ceremony that we call communion. So when you walked in this morning, you should have been offered a communion cup. If you did, you want to grab that right now. If you didn't, the team's going to come down the aisles and they're going to offer you the communion cup right now. You can grab one of these. But this is a ceremony that Jesus gives to his followers to take part in, to remember why he's the Messiah, why he's worth building our lives on. The night before Jesus would lay down his life, he shared one last meal with his 12 closest friends. They were sharing a Jewish Passover meal. It was a meal that God had given to the nation of Israel in order to celebrate how he had freed them from slavery in Egypt. But on this night, Jesus would change the meaning. He would change the meaning to be a reminder of how God has freed us from the slavery that we experienced to our sin. So at some point during the meal, Jesus took some bread. You can grab the bread right now if you've got it. He took some bread and he broke it and he gave thanks for it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. He said from time to time, I want you to take it. And I want you to eat the bread. And when you do, I want you to remember me. So together this morning, let's eat the bread. And as we do it, let's remember Christ's body broken for us.
And then Jesus took a cup of wine and he gave thanks for it as well. And he said, this is my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Take it and drink it. And as you do, remember me. So together this morning, let's drink the cup. As the band comes, will you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for passages like Matthew 1, where we get to read the details of how your story is anchored in fact. It's not fiction. It's not a fairy tale. God, ultimately, the reason that we're here is because you sent your son, who is the Messiah, who laid down his life to bridge the gap between us and you to pay the penalty for our sin once and for all and to conquer sin and death on our behalf. And so, Lord, this morning, we remember, we celebrate, and we worship you. So, Lord, in these next few moments, would you be glorified by our thoughts and the words that we sing? It's in Jesus' name that we pray, and everyone who agreed said, amen.